Hello, everybody. This is Oscar Dahl. I'm here with Matthew Knutson, and this is We Like Movies. End of 2017, in the middle of January 2018, extravaganza. Matt, how you doing, buddy? I'm doing well. I, I feel like we haven't had an official, you know, New Year's podcast yet. I don't really count our Golden Globe quickie. You know, like that. That all it came and went so fast. It was so. You know, that was a quickie. We both felt dirty afterwards. Yeah, exactly. It wasn't fun. You know, it was. <laughs> Just had to get it in under the buzzer. So. Yeah, so let's consider this our first real uh, Happy New Year podcast. How are you, sir? You just got back from uh, Las Vegas. You were at CES. Tell us all about that. I was at CES. There were a lot of nerds and a lot of men in Las Vegas that week. Okay. Um, is the, I, is I, the I, AVN the same weekend as CES? What are you implying <laughs> well, there by this? Oh, just, I don't know. <laughs> there's a lot of nerds. There's, okay. a lot of, there's a lot of yeah dudes there. Got it. Um uh, you know, I, I I did my best not to party too hard. I was there for work. Um, but, you know, I got some gambling in, got some walking on the strip in. Uh, it was it was good times. Where'd you, you know? stay? Uh, I stayed at a house near the airport. Really? Very, yeah, lovely place. Hmm. Um, no, it, it was like a rundown sort of Scarface lair. You know, it was like a, it was a, like it would have been a really, really nice place place if it had been uh, kept up to any sort of degree um it rained uh like it flooded uh the day before and the day of well, when we got there and uh, there was there was uh, there were leaks everywhere part of my ceiling in my room fell down in the middle of the night one night let's just say that so. huh wow i don't know if i've ever talked to anybody who went to las vegas for a few days and and stayed anywhere besides you know even a motel for like i don't think i've ever talked to anybody who like did an airbnb there but I, I guess it's just as feasible as anything else well i'll tell you what it felt great to have somewhere to like walk around in sure. when you wake up after a night in vegas like sure. it, it really made everything a lot better especially having to get on your computer and work a little bit um any uh, i strongly advise it strongly advise it because if you're on the strip and you want to go somewhere else on the strip, you're taking a freaking Uber anyway, right? <laughs> so, might as well. Any um, any movie news? Any uh, I don't know conferences you went to or booths or I don't know any 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 good scoop to bring to the WLM table after your experience there? No, <laughs> no <laughs> exciting groundbreaking technology that's coming along. No, nothing that's going to like completely change the fabric of how we uh, digest media this year. Uh, there are robot strippers now, apparently. So that's maybe that's one thing that will. I don't know, <laughs> but but that 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 was my main technological takeaway. A uh, lot a lot of, of three sixty cameras, a lot of virtual reality stuff. But again, I was I was mostly working and going to meetings and and, and such, so it wasn't. Uh, I didn't get to see it all, unfortunately. All right, Matt, we're here today to go through our top 10 lists of, of 2017 uh, and make our Oscar predictions. Uh, as of right now, we're about, I don't know, 12 hours away from the uh, uh, nomination announcements. Uh, so that's pretty exciting. Um, we had our uh, Matt- we had SAG last night. Uh, three billboards continued its, its dominance and its march towards the podium by having a big night at SAG. I just got um, I just got a uh, package from A24 with all my uh, screeners. So oh, so yeah. So I got what do I got here? I got uh, I got the Disaster Artist. I got uh, Florida Project. I got Lady Bird. I got uh, Menage. I got Killing of a Sacred Deer. I got a good time. I got a lot of movies I've already seen. Let's put it that way. But it is kind of cool to get a package in the mail that says A24 on it. So that is very exciting. One of the Good for you. benefits of being a member of uh, Film Independent. 
All right, Matt, should we go through some of the movies that we didn't get a chance to see? My list is pretty long. I was hoping, because uh, I live in Seattle and we're just this podunk city in the upper northwest, uh, lower Canada here, and we don't get all the movies on time, and so I've been a little busy and haven't had a chance to see, uh, like, I haven't seen Molly's Game or Phantom Thread. Those are my two two big ones. Um, and I haven't seen Darkest Hour. So in terms of Oscar potential nominees, I mean, there's a whole host of other movies I haven't seen either. Yeah. Uh, mostly some of the foreign, more obscure ones. But uh, yeah, those are my big misses. Yeah, honestly, I mean, I think even the big, you know, even the big shot uh, critics almost always have these kinds of like caveat lists that fall along. I think sooner or later, you just kind of get, you get to a point where it's just like, all right, well, I'm never going to be able to say that I saw literally every single film that came out in 2017. So... You get to a point, you just go ahead and snap it off. You make your list and you move on with your life. And um, yeah, I don't think Matt, when we're old and retired and have nothing else to do, we will see every movie that is released. I mean, even then, I just I still don't think it's even even feasible. Although uh, you know, we were talking a little bit off the air about the fact that we both keep pretty uh, diligent watch lists nowadays, which it seems like a lot of people are doing. Um, I sort of credit Steven Soderbergh a little bit with starting that trend, but. the idea is to uh, keep a log of everything you see and also um, note, I, I note personally, not only the date and what the film was, but like the nature by which I, you know, the venue I saw it in. So I did, I see it in the theater. Did I see it at home? Did I see it on Netflix? Did I watch it on DVD? Yada, yada. And so, um, yeah, last year I, I broke triple digits in the theater for the first time ever, which I'm very excited about and just and came in just shy of 300 movies overall. So this year I'm going to try and break 300. 300, 300 viewings. Let's let's be clear. Here. Yeah. The, the the 14 times you saw Dunkirk. <laughs> well, seven in the theater and once once on iTunes. Um, that yes, away. that's All an right. important distinction to make and this year I'm definitely going to f- make sure I I keep track about like, you know, individual films themselves so I don't get too high on my own supply. Um, any other uh, films that just uh, slipped through the cracks for you in 2017 that you would like to uh, mea culpa? Uh, Killing of a Sacred Deer is a movie that I didn't get a chance to see, which is unfortunate. Um, Detroit, Loving Vincent, Columbus, Personal Shopper. Um, what else here? I didn't see Downsizing, Victoria and Abdul, uh, Valerian. You know, I just I just caught I just watched Valerian over the weekend. Actually, I didn't I didn't uh, hold off making my list to see Valerian, but it definitely was just that movie that was rattling around on my hard drive for about six months. So I finally got around to it. Yeah, I uh, I liked it. I was surprised how much I liked it. Nice. And uh, Girl's Trip. Those are the main ones on my sort. I sort of made a really long list um, in about early November of movies I wanted to see before the end of the year and, and. those were the ones that uh, I somehow didn't get to, but I got to most of them, so I feel good about that. I also missed Girls Trip, and I missed Downsizing, and honestly, Downsizing really came down to the fact that I just, you know, and this is totally on me, and I don't mean it as an insult to Mr. Damon or Mr. Payne, but uh, I, I had multiple opportunities to see Downsizing. I, I literally could have gone out to see it multiple times and decided, you know, to go see Dunkirk for the seventh time or whatever. I literally, like, almost went out of my way not to see that movie. And I, I think it says a lot about that film. Um, BPM, Beats Per Minute. I also just got a screener for that, a uh, digital screener for that the other day, uh, but I still haven't gotten around to it. Uh, Dawson City, Frozen Time. 
This, yes, um, that's a movie I've been meaning to get to. I, yeah, but yeah, and I, I I have it too. I just literally haven't sat down to watch it. Uh, Ex Libris, New York Public Library, uh, the Wiseman documentary that I, I'm actually really excited about checking out. I just haven't been able to find it anywhere. I feel like I've been searching around online for the last month, and I, I still have yet to find it. Um, yeah, I look for that movie too. And that, that's a you gotta really sit down. That's like three it's a and long half hours. Isn't yeah, it? yeah, it's a long one. Uh, I, I just it would have been a great one to like watch with like the family over Christmas break. But um, just just yeah, really documentaries were a little bit of a blind spot for me in 2017, which I'm embarrassed about. Uh, well, those typically come out way late too. Like you said, it's hard to find them in the sort of streaming circuit once they're out of theaters, and they're rarely in theaters very long. So it's true. Uh, the next one of, would, in the same category, category would be Jane, uh, the Jane Goodall documentary, which I'm really excited to check out. Very, I'm just fascinated by her. Uh, Icarus is a documentary that's been on Netflix for a while, so I have no excuse there. Um, Lady Macbeth, uh, Nocturama, and uh, Quiet Passion. Those were all also films that I saw popping up on a lot of lists that uh, I just haven't gotten around to yet. I did see Loving Vincent recently, which which was beautiful, but uh, a little thin on the narrative side of things. Cool. So just going back to the watch list real, real quick, this is the first year I'd really done this uh, diligently, uh, as you said. And I've, I, I've, uh, I do the venue and, and the dates, and I also give a, a pitchfork-style rating to each of these films. So that's... One through ten, you know, number with a decimal. You know, I guess one could make the argument that the two real true front runners for Best Picture this year are Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri and The Shape of Water. And those are actually films that I have seen pop up on certain worst of 2017 lists. Whereas, whereas you don't, I mean, not, not a lot, but I have, I have seen it happen. Whereas you, you certainly wouldn't see, you know, you don't see Lady Bird or, you know, Get Out or even Dunkirk making those, you know, like sort of spanning those kinds of extremes. I mean, yeah. some people just absolutely hate three billboards and it must just be killing them that it's just sort of catching fire here as we well, get closer and closer to the big event. We'll see. I mean, there was a period of time between the Golden Globes and when I believe Oscar nomin- Oscar votes were due where the backlash started, right? And there yeah. was, and we and we are balls deep into the three <laughs> billboards backlash right now. Um, I, I I think an argument can be made that maybe we're living in a post three billboards backlash world, <laughs> right? Where, <laughs> yeah, where it's yeah. like the controversy or the backlash or whatever doesn't seem to be slowing it down at all. I, I feel like when the movie came out, it, it was like almost immediately controversial to the point where I thought, oh, maybe this is just going to fizzle because it's just going to be too much for people to take. And for a while there, it was pretty quiet. Now it seems like we're past the point and now people are really digging into their passion the positive passion for it. And as a result, it may very well take this all the way. I mean, I'd, at this point, I'd say, you know, I don't think anybody would be surprised, even the people who hate the movie, if it, if it went ahead and won Best Picture in March. But uh, we'll, we'll get to that. Um, cool. Well, should we just dig into this thing? Let's do it. Um, you want to start first with your number 10? Yeah, and what we're going to do, we're going to do something a little different this year. Uh, this is something that I've been noticing a lot of these types of uh you know, podcast listicles have been doing is if we have a film, if a film gets announced that uh, that the other one of us has on their list, we're going to wait to talk about it until we get to the highest point where that film occurs. If that makes sense. Um, yeah, I'll go ahead and get into it. My list has uh, been up on our website for a little while now, but you've been very responsible and uh, haven't looked at it yet. So as a result, this is going to be all new to you. Yeah. So, number 10 on my list for 
best films of 2017 is the documentary Faces Places by Ooh. Agnes Varda and uh, a, a photographer who just goes by JR. Okay. So uh, this is something I saw very, very late. Uh, I saw it in late December, right before Christmas. And by that point, it was already um, kind of legendary on the um, f- film festival circuit. And so by the time I saw it, I'd been reading about it for so long that I was I kind of had my arms folded. And I was like, all right, movie, impress me. And I don't know, I don't know how much you know about it, but it's on paper, it's a very, very kind of like obnoxious kind of conceit, which is basically that just you know Agnes Varda, this legendary uh, filmmaker from the you know most famous for being a female member of the New Wave, um, gets together with this photographer who's about uh, forty years her junior, uh, fifty-five years her junior rather, and they basically travel around rural France taking pictures of people. And then, like, wheat-pasting large-format prints of those pictures onto, like, the sides of buildings. So what they'll do is they'll, like, go you'll like go to, like, a factory or something, take a picture of, you know, factory workers, and then print out these, you know, 100-foot-tall pictures of these factory workers and, like, plaster it to the side of the factory. <laughs> Which sounds pretty silly when you say it out loud, but it ends up being just a really interesting kind of meditation on the nature of art and kind of like the uh, uh, the intangibility and the, the, you know, the way that art sooner or later will fade and yet it's its ability to really move people and change their lives despite the fact that it is you know impermanent if you will especially this kind of stuff because they're basically plastering it on the side of buildings which are going to be subject to the elements right so sooner or later wind and rain and snow and you know life is going is going to eventually break down these you know these works of art until there's nothing left so it, there truly is like a lifespan on this kind of stuff and yet it still has the capacity to move someone when they walk outside their house and see their face you know plastered on the side of it um, and there's a particularly moving scene where this woman, she's like the last person to be living in this housing development. Everybody else has been forced out for economic reasons. And she's like holding on and she refuses to sell. And her family's been there for generations and stuff, right? And so they take a picture of her. And without telling her, they blow this picture up. They paste it on the side of, of her house. She, you know, she's the last one left living basically in this side of town. And when she walks outside of the house and like looks up and sees her face on it, you know, like the last member of her family to be living in this house where her family members have been living for generations, she just like completely breaks down. And it's this incredibly authentic moment. Uh, and this really just, just this moment of like authentic emotion. And she just can't like, she just can't even put it into words. And she just hugs both Agnes Varda and this photographer, JR. And it's just like, Oh man, this is the kind of thing. This is what documentaries can really achieve. You know, this is something that you can't, you can only find in documentary filmmaking. And there's just this beautiful May, December, friendship that builds between these two and um it's you know it's just a great road trip movie it's a great buddy movie it's a great movie about art it's a great movie about france it's a great movie about you know french cinematic history there's a lot uh, uh, jean-luc godard kind of like he's like a specter that's kind of um sort of haunting the entire film because agnes varda has such an incredible reverence for him because they're such old friends i don't know it's just a really you know it's just a great movie about art i'll say that well, I will check that out. I have that's not really been on my radar. I, I remember uh, reading about it during a uh, can, but 
Yeah, cool. I'll check it out. If I mean, we're not going to um, we're not going to predict the documentary category on this podcast. But if uh, if I was a betting man and you held a gun to my head today, I'd say this is your best documentary winner for 2017. All right, cool. Um, my number ten is a movie we talked about a long time ago called Wind River. Uh, yeah. Um, so I presume it did not make your list, Matt. Cool. Um, so this is a movie that, you know, Taylor Sheridan's been our guy for a while, you know, wrote Sicario, wrote Hell or High Water, two of my favorite movies of the last uh, handful of years. Um, and I feel like Wind River sort of faded away pretty quickly because it's a really difficult movie. You know, it's a hard movie. It's it's hard subject matter um, taking place on a Native American reservation. Um and, you know, pretty <laughs> makes sense. The, the plight of the Native Americans has been uh, largely ignored and sort of brushed under the rug in, in popular culture. Um, but as, as we're used to with, with Taylor Sheridan, the, the, his storytelling style um, just, just fucking, he does it for me, man. Like the, 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 the lack of exposition, sort of the, 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 the tight, taut plotting um peeling the layers of the story as you go along um an intriguing mystery but it's not relying on any sort of like uh any sort of twist um you know the the major quote-unquote twist in the movie is this sort of flashback that feels executed extremely well um well acted you know elizabeth olsen and jeremy renner are, are terrific uh as are all the sort of uh native american uh, actors uh, in the movie too um yeah, it's a, it's it's a movie I adored. It's a movie I'm, I've been sort of reticent to uh, see again or even recommend because it it is pretty difficult and violent and heartbreaking. Um, but it's a movie that has uh, stuck with me uh, throughout the year. Yeah, it was just when you brought it up, I was, and you were talking about Taylor Sheridan. I was like, is this Taylor Sheridan's like darkest film? But it's kind of hard to say that considering he's the guy who wrote Sicario, right? <laughs> who wrote the ending of Sicario, yeah. Yeah, but it, but it really is his most, like, probably emotionally devastating film, it's for his, sure, It's right? his most in, inaccessible film, for sure, yeah, yeah, and, and yeah, devastating, definitely. Yeah, I, I really, really liked it. Uh, I have not revisited it since the theater, but I was, I remember being very affected by it. I loved that quote-unquote twist, or whatever we're calling it, uh, which I guess alienates some people, but I just thought it was very inventive. And um, I don't know. He's just a guy who just seems to. He just seems to have these really narratively inventive ideas every time. I don't know. He 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 revisits similar subject matter, and yet everything he writes always seems so fresh. Um, and it was interesting to see him, you know, a guy we consider as a writer to have his directorial debut the same year that we got uh, Aaron Sorkin's directorial debut as well, right? So. I mean, he certainly has room to to develop as a director, and he will, and I'm excited to see where he goes, but still pretty darn confident first time out of the gates, right, from a directorial Extre- standpoint? Definitely. I mean, it's he, he has a really cool venue to play in, the sort of the, the extreme, the snowy vistas that he has. It's, it's hard to go wrong there, but, uh, you know, every time coming away from a Taylor Sheridan movie, I just think, man, that was executed so fucking perfectly. Um, the script is so tight. Um, yeah, I, I am, I'm a sucker for like really well, uh, well done exposition and he, he, he nails it every time. So, um, I'm a fan. I, I want more people to see this movie. Um, but it's, I, it's kind of, it's one of those things like, I wonder if it had gotten a big push in November, December release, if it had, maybe would have garnered some more buzz, but, 
Um, it, it, it didn't really hit at, at Sundance last year either, which was sort of surprising. Again, I think I chalk it up to the difficulty of the subject matter. Yeah, I think the fact that it was a Miramax or a Weinstein movie also did it no favors. That's probably true. You yeah. know, uh, eventually Taylor Sheridan, I believe, bought the film back from Weinstein and found a different distributor for it. But I think by that point, it was kind of like it was the damage had been done. It was already too late. Um, but I, yeah, I do think the subject matter is a little bit difficult. It's a little bit of a hard sell. Um, but yeah, I, I completely agree. Just barely missed my list. Definitely on my honorable mentions for the year. Cool. All right. What do you got? Number nine. Number nine would be Logan, which I have a sneaking suspicion might come up later on yours as well. Yes, let's wait and talk about that in a bit. Okay, doke. All right, number nine for me is uh, a movie that's gotten a lot of love. It's a huge Oscar contender. It's a movie that's sort of not that cool to love, but damn it, it affected me greatly. It's called The Shape of Water. Um, uh, I, I mean... Guillermo del Toro seems to be the only serious filmmaker really making his mark with these adult fairy tales. Um, and this movie in particular is beautifully filmed. Love the music. These are some of the best actors we have. Sally Hawkins puts on, you know, top five performance of the year. Um, and these are universal themes of outcasts and wanting to be loved and people being scared of the unknown. Um, and, you know, maybe there's not as much sort of dramatic tension as you might want from something that is, you know, ostensibly a thriller. Um, but dang it, by the end of this movie, I was a, I was a little wet ball of sadness, man. Like I was, <laughs> I, I was, it got dusty in the theater for me. Um, and I, uh, yeah, I, I, I loved this movie. Yeah, a, a lot of people do. Um, it is, it's definitely a, a, an honorable mention for me. I have a lot of respect for it, but uh, you know, similar to ways that I've felt about other uh, Guillermo del Toro films in the past, I just have a little bit of a hard time accessing it at the emotional level. Like, I have a lot of respect for the craft and uh, for the performances, but um, yeah, just can't quite i don't know just like something about the fetishizing of some of the the more fantastical or mystical stuff um <laughs> it's just not really it's just not really my my thing but yeah. i certainly have a lot of respect for it and you know i'm not a big guillermo guy like i don't really love a ton of his movies i mean pan's labyrinth is fantastic but besides that i i'm not gonna get all uh excited or defend really any anything else in his oeuvre um, and I was, I was kind of reticent to see this movie because of that, but, uh, yeah, it caught me off guard and I fucking, I loved it. It just seems to be crossing over in a way that Pan's Labyrinth wasn't able to, and maybe it's an English language thing. Uh, maybe it just comes, comes down to subtitles, but, uh, but yeah, it really seems to be crossing over, right? It won the PGA award, I think last week. So, uh, it's really going to give three billboards a run for its money. I think I, I could definitely imagine a world in which it wins best picture. And I can certainly imagine a world in which Guillermo wins because, you know, he's the toast of the town. He's incredibly lovable. He's a great interview. He gives great speeches. He goes out and presses the flesh. And I think we all kind of like want to live in a world where the third of the quote unquote three caballeros uh, gets his Oscar so that Quaron, Inaritu, and Del Toro can all have Oscars. Remember when, uh, remember when uh, uh, Scorsese finally winning his for The Departed was a foregone conclusion and that they actually took the risk and had Spielberg, Lucas, and uh, Coppola 
get up there and and announce the award at the Oscars. I really hope that they do that for Guillermo this year. I hope they put Coran and Inuritu up there. But I was thinking, like, God, imagine if Scorsese hadn't won in that situation. Like, how incredibly and uh, how embarrassing would that be? Like, if it works out, it's the cutest thing ever. If it doesn't work out, like, remember when Harrison Ford got up there and he was going to announce Saving Private Ryan as best picture, and then it went to Shakespeare in Love, and it was, like, a little yeah. bit awkward? <laughs> it's, I guess it's just a risk you got to take. But Yeah, it'd be, it'd be weird if they end up giving it to Martin McDonough. Right? Yeah, exactly. Or <laughs> Nolan. Like, personally, I would prefer, I think Nolan deserves it over del toro but i gotta say i do really relish the idea of seeing quran and, and inaritu give an oscar to their boy um awesome my number eight is a little documentary called keddy which i think i've been raving about to you since early it came out early february march of 2017 oh i watched it you did you've seen it okay great yeah um it's the uh quote-unquote turkish cat documentary Yes, it is. That is exactly what it is, Matt. <laughs> <laughs> and I wrote in my blurb about it on um, on our website that it is equal part Turkish travelogue, spiritual meditation, and 80-minute cute cat video. Um, but I think it's reductive to think of it as just the video of cute cats running around Istanbul because it really is an almost, an almost kind of like spiritual um, experience in terms of how it ties the the personality of the city of Istanbul, you know, this like this haunted ancient city um, with the fact that cats who've come from all over the world uh, sort of like define the spirit and the personality of the city. And, and the idea is that because it's such a bustling port city, cats have, have come in off these boats from, you know, six continents over, you know, centuries and as a result, you have uh, just an incredible array, just like the the variety of cats running around Istanbul is is unlike anywhere else in the world. And uh, and it just is like this beautiful little episodic, even calling it a documentary almost seems reductive. And it, it really is just kind of like a movie with uh, with no peer. It's just following these different personalities, these feline personalities around the city, how they're interacting with each other, how they're interacting with the city, how they're interacting with their, their humans. And, um, and, you know, just like what they mean to, uh, kind of the day to day experience of people living in Istanbul. It's really just a, just a beautiful, beautiful little 80 minute movie, but it's not a bobble, you know, it's actually, it's actually kind of moving and sort of profound in its own way. And in addition to just being just beautifully shot with a lot of like incredible you know drones you know ground level gopros um there's just an incredible like sort of photographic variety at work here yeah i you know it, it didn't hit me the way the way it hit you i i have it ranked between a uh, good time and pirates of the caribbean five <laughs> on my list seven <laughs> so, yeah uh but but then again i'm not a cat guy I, in fact, I grew up with a cat that I hated, and so maybe that's part of my uh, reticence to really embrace this movie. Although I will say, I mean, it, it was—and this is damning with faint praise—like the best sort of like travel channel show I've ever seen. Right? It's uh, it was beautiful. It gives you a great sense of the city itself. Uh, wonderfully shot, and uh, yeah, is sort of almost spiritual, like you said. But it just didn't uh, didn't strike me like it struck you. Yeah, I mean, I, I wouldn't even necessarily call myself a cat person or an animal person or a dog person necessarily. I just, um, yeah, for some reason I got just super involved in all the different uh, the different stories they, they chose to focus on. And uh, yeah, I don't know. It, just, it was one of those movies that I saw really early in the year. 
absolutely loved it. And just all year long was thinking to myself, oh, God, there's no way this actually ends up in my top 10, right? And slowly but surely, as uh, you know, over the course <laughs> of the year, like I just, I never was able to, to push it out. And, uh, and I, like you said, damning with fate praise that, uh, I actually mean that as a huge compliment that it's just, it's been, it, it was the first film of 2017 to end up in my top 10. So cool. All right. Um, my number eight is a little bit of a cheat. Uh, this wasn't a theatrical release, but it is a, you know, 95 minute documentary, if you will. It's something called finding Francis. And it was the finale of, uh, the latest and possibly last season of Nathan for you on comedy central. Um, if you haven't seen this, just, just trust me and, and watch this. It's one of the most bizarre, profound philosophical pieces of entertainment. Uh, you will, you will ever see. Basically, if you don't know Nathan for you, his whole shtick, if you want to call that, and I've been a big fan for a long time is he helps out, uh, businesses with these like ridiculous ideas to help like get them, you know, get them more business. Uh, he's the guy behind dumb Starbucks, for instance, uh, in LA, if you remember that thing back in the day. Um, but anyway, he had hired in an earlier season, a guy, an older guy in LA who was a, uh, Bill Gates impersonator. turns out he wasn't really a Bill Gates impersonator, but he just answered the call. So he used this guy as a Bill Gates impersonator for one of his sort of shticks. Um, however, he had kept in touch with, with Nathan Fielder over the years. And he kept mentioning to him that he had this long lost love that he couldn't find. And this is like a 72 year old guy. Um, and so Nathan just decided, you know what? Hey, I'm going to go for it. And I'm going to try to find this guy's long lost love with him. And this starts them on a months long odyssey that is filmed as a documentary for the show. Um, they go to the Midwest, they go to a bunch of different places, they go to the hometown, they interview all these people, they're trying to find this woman. Um, but it really it really is about the journey on the way uh, for both Nathan and this guy. And it's, it's insane because Nathan starts like breaking down and he sort of starts asking himself philosophical questions about like, who am I, what am I doing? And it's all about like, what is your chosen persona? Uh, what do you hang on to? I mean, this guy was like a a huge star and the handsomest guy in the small town and went to LA to make it and he never made it, but he's always held on to this one thing, this long lost love that sort of anchored him forever. Um, and I don't want to give away too much more, but it's, it's emotional <laughs> and devastating and heartbreaking and really, really funny all at once. Um, and you know, the, the ending is, is, is something else. So, uh, I advise everyone to see it. <laughs> Go for it. It's wow. crazy. Did it ever, uh, was there ever any theatrical distribution for it? It was on Comedy Central, right? No, it was, it was, the, it was the season finale. It's a two-hour season finale. Um, if you have the Comedy Central app, I presume you can watch it. Um, but it is, it is one of the most odd things you'll ever, <laughs> you'll, you'll ever watch. So, um, you know, going through the years, sort of like you with Keddy, like I kept saying, like, there's no way this could make my top ten. I put it on my list be, uh, regardless. But, uh, yeah, it's uh, – I can't recommend it highly enough. All right. Definitely an esoteric choice. Um, all right. So that would bring me to number seven, correct? All right. Number seven. This is going to be tough because uh, I know you haven't had a chance to get to it yet. Um, that would be Phantom Thread. 
So, uh, so yeah, I'm sure when you get around to seeing it, uh, we'll have a more in-depth conversation. And, I'm seeing uh, it tonight, damn it. Really? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I'm still glad we decided to push through with this because I think it's important to get this out before the Oscar nominations. But, um, you know, I, I think there is a, an argument that can be made that uh, we would allow an addendum if it turns out that this movie rocks your world the way that it rocked mine. Um. Yeah, I, I won't say too much about it because uh, I want you to go in relatively um, clean. But um, needless to say, uh, the P.T. Anderson train just keeps on rolling. He keeps proving to us why he's one of the most important and maybe the most important uh, American filmmaker of his generation. And um, this is his best movie since There Will Be Blood, which I think a lot of people would probably point to as his de facto masterpiece. I'm a Boogie Nights guy myself, but um, I do think you can really divide his career into two parts here. And I think it's the sort of like Altman slash Scorsese channeling years, which would be Heart Eight to Punch Drunk Love. And then from there will be blood until Phantom Thread. Now, I think we're looking at the Kubrick channeling years really more than any other influence. Um, And I think he is every bit as sort of like ambitious and profound in his um you know in like the emotional and visual scope of his films i mean and the fact that he basically shot this one himself and uh and this might be daniel day lewis's last performance and it's certainly one of the greatest performances in a in an unprecedented career um this incredible discovery of this vicky creeps who i believe is luxembourgian right um and Probably no. I'll, I'll go ahead and say it. Johnny Green, Johnny Greenwood's best score yet, um, and and that's saying a lot considering what an enormous fan I am and and how iconic his score for There Will Be, there will be Blood was. Uh, I think this is his best work, and so I don't know. It's just it's so incredible that he managed to make a film like this that's so funny and so tight. You know, like a filmmaker who often recently has kind of. Uh, allowed himself a certain amount of uh, elbow room when it comes to running time and um, and really being deliberate. Uh, this is a really tight, funny, just moving, intimate film. I, I don't know. I just I just can't recommend it highly enough. And and in a lot of ways, I think it might be one of his most accessible films too. Maybe not as much as you know something like Boogie Nights. Although Boogie Nights is pretty long and pretty epic and pretty you know pretty dark. Um, this is just funny and weird and accessible and romantic and beautiful. And, uh, it's just, it's just everything you want from the guy. He's just, he's working with a, on a, with a level of confidence that just, um, is extraordinary. So I love him. I'm so, I'm so, I feel so privileged to be, you know, getting to see this filmmaker's evolution in real time. Well, what's also beautiful about it is, He's still young, and it seems like he still wants to work, and he hasn't gone crazy or anything. And so we, we get another 20, 30 years of, of this guy doing just whatever he wants, which is fantastic. Yeah, and he's not he doesn't do this, you know, the, the Tarantino thing where he, you know, threatens, I'm only making 10 and then I'm done or whatever, right? Like, it no, takes he him— He wants to keep moving. Yeah. He, he's still hungry, and it takes him a while. I mean, he has—I think he has four kids now. Um, so, you know, he's a family man and he's got other things going on as well. So it's going to take him four or five years between films. But if this is the kind of film we get, then it's certainly worth the wait. So. All right. Sweet. I'm looking forward to it's it. It's wonderful. I can't wait to hear uh, how you feel about it. Cool. 
Um, my number seven is a movie called The Big Sick. Um, I uh, yeah, I adore this movie. I saw it again recently. It's uh, it's basically the perfect romantic comedy. I'm so proud of Michael Showalter, who I've been a huge fan of uh, since I started watching The State in fifth grade. Uh, I you know I I think it's just character wise, it's it's fantastic. The dialogue is on point the whole whole way. Um, the the depiction of, of of family, both in terms of Holly Hunter and Ray Romano, and then Kumail's uh, extended family, uh, is is just terrific. Uh, you know, it never gets too schmaltzy, and he could have easily gotten over dramatic or over emotional at many points in this movie, and it never devolves into that. Um, it just feels it felt real. Um, I you know, it's he's such a lovable guy. Um, I. Yeah, I, I can't say enough about it. I think romantic comedies are by and large trash, and this is uh, an example of how you can pull off a great one. Yeah, the the degree of difficulty for successful romantic comedies. I don't think we talk enough about how incredibly difficult it is to to nail this, and uh, and they did it, and they managed to appeal to such an enormously wide audience without ever like talking down to that audience. And I really think this movie kind of like is almost the new template for what the romantic comedy should be moving forward. So a movie I absolutely loved, just missed my list, certainly an honorable mention. And uh, God, Holly Hunter and Ray Romano. Why has Ray Romano never been a viable part of this Oscar conversation? Like Holly Hunter's wonderful. I think she's great. And I think the script is great and certainly has an outside chance. Why is Ray Romano not a part of this supporting actor conversation? He's He might be my favorite part of the whole film. He is the best part of the movie. He is so fucking good. He's and so good. Just wait, wait till our Oscar predictions, man. I got some. Uh, okay. Stuff. All right. I'm sure yeah. we'll. I'm sure we'll get into it. Basically, I have a my Oscar predictions all written down here in longhand, and then I just have Ray Romano exclamation point exclamation point question mark question mark question mark because <laughs> I don't think he does. He doesn't have a chance. He hasn't been nominated for anything thus far. But I just think it's so silly. Anyway, we'll get into it later. It's a great movie. I, I love The Big Sick. Um, next on my list, which would be number six, is The Florida Project. Not on my list. Uh, you, have you seen it? Okay. Um, yeah, just, just, just a movie that you know was already kind of a big deal by the time I saw it at the New York Film Festival because it had already been a big deal at Cannes. And uh, I had pretty darn high expectations going into it. And you know, I think I saw it, liked it, appreciated it, respected it. And and that was pretty much that. And then just the more I thought about it and the more I read about it and the more interviews I heard, you know, listened to with Sean Baker and the more I just had conversations with people about it, it just kept rising in esteem for me to the point where it just became one of the movies that I thought about the most in 2017. Um, and then rewatched it and just absolutely loved it even more and just fell even more head over heels for Willem Dafoe and, and Brooklyn Prince. Um Brooklyn Prince, that's her name, right? Yeah, Brooklyn Prince. Um, and I just, it, it, it's its definitely one of the most ubiquitous films in terms of critical acclaim in 2017. It seems to have topped as many lists as something, you know, like Get Out, which was also pretty darn ubiquitous. So in that regard, it, it's not, there's nothing revolutionary about singing this movie's praises. But I do think it deserves everything that's been said about it. And um, it just, it just sort of cements the fact that this Sean Baker is is the real thing and that he's kind of like working in a sandbox 
of his own. In a lot of ways, he's almost sort of like constructing a brand new sandbox in terms of a certain ter- certain type of American neorealism or whatever you want to call it. Um, and it could so easily be manipulative and saccharine or it could be poverty porn, you know? Like, there's so many directions this film could have gone in and gotten um, mired in some sort of emotional quagmire. Uh, and yet I feel like it just completely sidesteps all of those and actually comes to a place of um, of authenticity and something like respect for characters who are kind of, you know, marginalized in most art. So, uh, and that crazy controversial ending, um, I'm all for it. I'm, I'm squarely in the pro side for that ending that completely divides people. And I totally understand why it doesn't work for a lot of people. I get it. I think the, I think it's actually constructed to be a little bit polarizing. Um, but I'm, I, I was hundred percent on board the first time I saw it. And the more I think about it, the more I hear people complain about it, the more I like it and the more I think it's effective. So, yeah, I, uh, I, I, I liked it. I liked it. Um, and I, I did like the ending too. I, I had nothing wrong with that. It, it looks like it's like number 22 on my list for the year or something like that. Um, it's one of those movies where, you know, about 45 minutes, an hour into it, I was like, okay, I get it. <laughs> like, I, I, I don't I don't need any more. I know where this is going. Um, it, it felt like maybe it could have been half hour shorter and in in, in a pilot for a, a TV show or something. Um, but I, I just didn't need any more at, at, at some point. And so th- that, I guess, is, an, is a narrative issue that I, I wasn't a huge huge fan of um obviously the acting is great Willem Dafoe is wonderful it's great seeing him as a likable character um and he's going to deserve uh his nominations and potentially his his victory uh but yeah it's a movie that didn't affect me as emotionally maybe that means I'm a monster but uh I <laughs> again it, it, you hate I, cats I, and you hate kids that's what we're <laughs> determining here today <laughs> not not totally inaccurate um <laughs> No, I yeah, I liked it. I respect it. I, it just didn't uh, didn't hit me the way it hit a lot of people. Yeah. Um, all right, number six for me is a movie I saw a few weeks back, and I've been thinking about it ever since. Um, I don't know if you've seen it. Probably a movie called Marjorie Prime. I have not seen it yet. I, I should have put that on my uh, on one of the on the list of things that slipped through the cracks because I hear it's wonderful. Tell us all about it. Um, it is a very sort of low-budget, modest sci-fi film um, taking place in the pretty near future. Um, and basically the conceit is that um, in the future, uh, we will be able to create holograms of our loved ones that are basically holograms slash cyborg, not cyborgs, but like robots who, who of, of our past loved ones right and they learn the loved ones past and everything about them um and they basically are sort of a a a blanket you know for 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 grieving people um to have this remnant of their of their future husband or past husband or mother or or what have you um however part of that conceit is that there is a learning curve where you have to explain their history to themselves right um and so you we go through, uh, I don't want to spoil too much, but we go through a few iterations of this within one family unit. Um, and it's basically a very profound meditation on, on death, self, memory, uh, relationships, um, what it actually means to have a relationship, uh, how much of the emotional connections are tied to sort of facts. 
um, and and just shared experiences as opposed to the person themselves, um, sort of marriage, uh, loving relationships, uh, parents. Uh, and it's, uh, yeah, again, I don't want to spoil too much, but the actors are, are terrific. John Hamm, Tim Robbins, Gina Davis. God, it's great to see her uh, in, a, in a really good movie. That was fun. Um, but it's extremely dialogue heavy. There are only about three um, different uh, sets uh, for the entire film, but it's, it's really beautifully shot and really, like I said, modest and uh, quite thought-provoking. And it's, it's stayed with me ever since I saw it. And I want all the sci-fi like this that you can give me. So it's, it's uh, I guess some people have, you know, likened this to like a Black Mirror type episode. And, and I, I suspect that Black Mirror's ubiquity has sort of hurt this movie's potential for, for a wide audience because it is fairly similar. But I find this movie to be a lot more uh, subtle and maybe even optimistic in the end. So Kaufman-ish, Andrew Nichol-ish, Philip K. Dick-ish? Or... Yeah, it's not really relying upon sort of twists or tricks or a sleight of hand. Um, it's, it's, it's a little more straightforward than that. Um, but nonetheless, uh, it, 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 it doesn't, it, you know, it doesn't take you by the hand and walk you through it. Like you have to sort of, you, you have to pay attention and understand what's going on. Like it, yeah, it, it, it's a sort of difficult movie, but it's, it, it's, it's well worth it. It is too bad that it didn't end up being a, a bigger hit or that it got kind of lost in the shuffle because it seemed like it would have been a great opportunity for Lois Smith to, um, sneak into the awards conversation as well. And, you know, she did such great work in Lady Bird. Uh, that would, it would have been fun for this to kind of finally be a year where she could get some recognition. And it seems like this is the kind of role that potentially could have gotten her that. It just seems like it was ever so slightly too small. I actually think Tim Robbins and Gina Davis would have been way more likely. They're the standouts in this movie, in my mind. It's interesting that John Hamm gets the sort of poster and is the is the guy people are connecting to this movie, but it's, it's really Tim Robbins and Gina Davis's film. Okay. Well, I'm definitely going to check it out. I'm putting it to the top of my queue. Number five on my list is uh, also a very small, uh, unexpected, intimate, uh, modestly budgeted film called Columbus. It's, uh, I think, I don't think it's up on Netflix yet, but it's only a matter of time. Um, it was it was a movie that I was kind of skeptical about going in, kind of just sort of like watched it as homework. And about halfway through the movie, I was just like, yep, there's no way that unless this thing absolutely crashes and burns in the third act, there's no way this is not making it into my top five uh, because I, I fell head over heels for it almost immediately. Um, it really is just your, you know, your standard um small town walk and talk kind of inspired by, you know, maybe Richard Linkletter's midnight series, just as a, as a point of reference. Um, that's, that's a starting point, but there's so much more going on than that. Like there's this beautiful central relationship, romance, whatever you want to call it between, um, John Cho and Haley Lou Richardson. And it basically is them walking around, uh, Columbus, Indiana, uh, which interestingly enough is one of the, uh, the great hotbeds for modernist architecture. And uh, it's basically them just walking around uh, Columbus, Indiana, talking about architecture, talking about life, talking about love, talking about the past, talking about mistakes they've made, talking about their dreams, hopes, wishes. But there's something just beautifully, remarkably kind of true about not just their relationship, but their 
not just their relationship with each other, but their relationship with each of these various structures. And it's not just a, it's not like they walk around and say, okay, well, this building was built in this year and it's from this artist. And it's, it's not so much about um, sort of like the travel log aspect, although there is some of that as well, but it's more about sort of like the physicality, like the body's relationship to architectural structures and the way that we respond um, like physically and almost maybe even emotionally to structures that affect us and then inspire us. Um, and the movie is really confident in the way that it chooses to photograph, uh, you know, living characters against architecture. Um, and it, photographically, it's just the most remarkable film. And the fact that it's basically it's a it's a debut feature as well is is all the more remarkable. Uh, South Korean director named uh, Koganada, who's a, he's a film critic. He's an s he's a he's a video essayist. And uh, what an incredibly charming and confident debut this is it's just it's really just a movie you can sit down you know with any member of your family with your grandparents with your girlfriend i mean it's it's just the most accessible charming beguiling little film i can't say enough good things about it it it, you know you you sometimes talk about you know hangout movies or whatever like things you can just put on that are just going to calm your nerves and are just going to like sort of wrap you up in a nice warm cinematic embrace and it's not to say that there isn't heavy things going on or that there won't be you know character arcs and 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 emotional resonance here but this really is just this this is going to go into the category of films that i'm going to just fall asleep to for many many years and again not that it's boring not that it would put you to sleep but it's it's going to be such a pleasant film to fall asleep to (laughs) let's put it that way just if i need to sort of get brought down you know be brought down a little bit after an incredibly stressful day this is the kind of film i'm going to use and I mean that as a compliment, even though it's a weird one. I um, I'm very excited to watch it. I, it's it's available on on Google Play, so I'll, I will be renting it uh, sooner rather than later. Um, all right, my number five is a little movie called Blade Runner 2049. Um, yeah, I mean we've talked at length about this film, so we probably don't need to go into too much depth here. Uh, but my God, I mean. The expectations were impossible. I felt they were met. Um, there are a lot of, you know, loose threads, but uh, holy shit, what an experience. The most beautifully filmed sci-fi landscape I've seen in a long time. Um, just visually, the most impressive movie of the year for me. And uh, I I just, I, I, I love it to death. And I will, I will go to war for, for Blade Runner and our guy, Dennis. <laughs> Denis, please. No, um, <laughs> I will always fuck his name up every time, no matter what. I have to. Villanueva. Um, yeah, I, I, li- I like it a lot. I've, I saw it three times in the theater and liked it more every time I saw it. And um, not unlike um, The Last Jedi, another science fiction epic, um, have my problems and you know would be perfectly willing to talk at length about my issues. But it doesn't change the fact that I have a lot of respect for both films and, you know, saw them both multiple times in the theaters. We'll continue to watch them. I'm so I'm so impressed that they exist in the form that they do in the sort of like brazen manner that they do um, that I have to respect them. Yeah. If you want to hear our thoughts, I think we did a 90 minute podcast exactly about Blade Runner. So check that out. Yeah. Um, Okie doke. Number four. We are inside the top five now. Number four is Lady Bird. All right, I have that as well, so we can uh, put a hold on that for a second. 
Um, my number four is a movie uh, called Dunkirk, which we I think we can also lay off for a second. Most definitely. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, yes. So that would bring me to number three, which is Coco. Yeah, I, I, I almost want to go back and like edit the episode where I sort of like made fun of the idea of Coco or said that nobody was talking about it or that it, there was no cultural relevance that it was going to like, you know, that this is going to be the year that Coco and Cars 3 came out and nobody was ever going to talk about these two movies again. Um, boy, talk about eating my words. I, I, I didn't bother seeing it over its opening weekend, even as it came out to glowing reviews and became a big hit over Thanksgiving weekend. I, I don't think I saw it until maybe two weeks later. And I think part of that was that I was dragging my feet for them to get rid of that Frozen short. And when they finally did, I went and saw it by myself, and um, and I was just on board from the word go, and you know, sobbed like a baby at the end, just like every other adult in the theater around me, and uh, went back to see it two more times since then, and um, yeah, I mean, I can't say enough good things about it. It's just it's another magical, miraculous piece of art from from the uh, from the cats over at Pixar, and it, and it proves that when they when they dig in when they pay attention when they actually um make an effort uh nobody can do what they do from a to- from a storytelling standpoint and um you know even though it like completely will ring you out emotionally by the end there's nothing manipulative or or trite about the way that it gets to that place where where the tears come at the end. I mean, it really, really earns every bit of that emotional catharsis, I feel, by the end. I mean, it, it lays the track in a very respectful and, um, and diligent and sophisticated way. And it just com- continued to blindside me and hit me with things that I didn't see coming and go into some really surprisingly dark and mature and kind of adult places. <laughs> and yet, uh, and yet I still feel is, you know, totally accessible for the entire family, which is what, what Pixar really does best is be able to, you know, play to everyone without ever, you know, disrespecting anyone or talking down to anyone. And, um, in addition to all that, it's just absolutely friggin' eye poppingly beautiful as well. Like I'd, I'd put this up against, you know, any of the most iconic visuals in the in the Pixar oeuvre. I mean, there's there's moments in the movie that are just they completely justify the idea of computer generated animation. Like there's just there's there's images in this that are just every bit as beautiful as something you'd find in something like Blade Runner twenty forty nine. I'd say, for example, I really think we we will get to a point where we could potentially um, invent a category for computer generated cinematography. Yeah, we'll see. Um, hopefully this means Pixar is back on the upswing, um, but the jury is still out in my mind. Um, we, get, yeah, we, get I, an incredible, we get an Incredibles uh, sequel next year. I got hope, high hopes for that. Brad Bird's back. Yeah, let's hope. Um, all right, number three for me, and I think was number nine for you, is a movie called Logan. Um, you know, I'll be honest. Like This movie is made especially for me. Um, <laughs> this, is kind of, this is the kind of movie that you know, X-Men fans dream about. If you had told 13-year-old me that later on in life I'd be able to enjoy a hard R-rated Wolverine movie that's badass and extremely well done um, and acted by, uh, you know, a guy who's inhabited this role for decades now. Um, 
I'd say, are you fucking crazy? That sounds like the best movie ever. And it basically <laughs> is the best movie. I mean, it's <laughs> in terms of enjoyment and me feeling just so happy that it exists, like no movie uh, felt that way more than, than Logan this year. Um, and, you know, I, I'm happy it's, it, it's getting its due. I think a lot of people think it'll get some award nominations, maybe even a screenplay nomination. Um, I, I wish it had gotten maybe a little more best picture consideration, um, but I think it's you know it's a, it's it's a long uphill battle for any uh, comic book movie. But uh, again, I I mean I think this is the I've watched it a few times since the theater. Um, I've revisited you know some of the other you know Dark Knight and other comic movies. I think this is the best comic book movie of all time with a with a fucking bullet. So superior to um, the Dark Knight. Yeah, I, I I think so. I think the Dark Knights. Uh, hasn't held up as well as uh, maybe one would have assumed it would, um, and that's that's fine. It's still a fantastic movie, uh, but yeah, Logan can't say enough good things about it. I've been every person I've told you have to see this movie, even though they've been skeptical, has uh, has has loved it. So yeah, people were asking me, you know, in late December of what I was thinking of what I was shortlisting for this uh, for this top ten list and. Uh, you know, I was flattered that they cared about my opinion, but when I would, uh, when I, when I sort of waffle and be like, "Well, Lady Bird will probably be in there," oh, probably Dunkirk, eh. oh, definitely Logan. I'd always get a very quizzical look from people who hadn't seen it yet, because it is a hard sell, you know, as a as a prestige picture, or whatever, right? Just yeah, especially on, because the the previous Wolverine movies yeah. haven't been all that great either, right? Yeah, I mean we're 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 way we're deep in it. We're seventeen years into this X Men franchise, and there's been a lot of peaks and valleys mostly valleys so you wouldn't you wouldn't begrudge anybody for being quite skeptical of this thing but god damn yeah mangled and and scott frank and michael green just like really really taking this thing seriously and just stepping back and being like hey look we're, we're doing our own thing like just leave us alone we're gonna blaze a new trail we're gonna get super simple i mean this really is like the platonic ideal of what you and i always talk about in terms of these encapsulated autonomous you know like standalone stories it doesn't get much more standalone than this considering what happens at the end of this film right so uh so yeah this it really was like like you and i had uh had birthed birthed this thing <laughs> through, through exactly what kind of a film we were looking for from from our comic book films and you know we, we 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 made fun of justice league and i don't think we were as bowled over by thor ragnarok as a lot of people were but if you really look back at 2017 it was a pretty darn impressive year for comic book films um this obviously being the the pinnacle of that but also of course you know wonder woman broke a lot of ground uh, proved a lot of people wrong kind of changed the game uh, guardians of the galaxy volume two and then um, you know Spider-Man, for for its faults, uh, I, I think those those four films really. Well, isn't isn't John Wick technically a comic book movie too? Is John Wick? I didn't think. Is it a graphic novel? I thought John Wick was its own original thing. I could be wrong. Um, I don't know. Uh, maybe maybe not. It, but either way, that movie actually has popped up on a lot of these top ten lists. I wasn't. I enjoyed it. I I certainly wasn't that head over heels for it. But yeah, so maybe just genre filmmaking in general. I mean. I'll, I'll go ahead and spoil the fact that Hostels didn't make it onto my list, um, but it certainly John made Wick it is not not based on a comic. Sorry, no, it's not, it. and that actually makes John Wick all the more impressive, really, when you think about it. Um, but just in terms of genre filmmaking, I mean, Hostels, which I saw recently and is a very flawed film, 
is still a pretty impressive and ballsy and just out there crazy Western, um, which I, unfortunately I don't think is going to be much of a hit, but I'm so impressed that, um, that what's his name? Uh, I was going to say Scott Frank. That's not, uh, who is he? The, the crazy heart guy, Scott Cooper. I'm not a huge fan of his, but I'm still impressed by how brazen that movie is and the fact that he got it made and the fact that he was able to, you know, raise $50 million or whatever under his own steam. And then, you know, Logan is really at its at its heart a Western. Um, and I think that's one of the best things about it. I think it proves that James Mangold is not only a great Western director, but he's also maybe the most underrated action filmmaker working right now. So give that guy, I mean, he's proven himself here. He's proven himself time and time again. Just give him something original, you know, like let him let him do his thing. He really deserves to be working, you know, at, at the highest studio level um, because he's able to make these kinds of really sophisticated, mature adult action films. Yeah, give us a give us a one-off R-rated Black Widow movie. How about that? <laughs> that sounds great. Yeah, yeah, that sounds awesome. Yeah, like a, a, I mean, that's ostensibly what Red Sparrow is is purporting <laughs> yes. to be, right? I mean, that's the whole yeah. that's the Red Sparrow thing is that they're like, ooh, Red Sparrow beat Black Widow to the. Although I don't think Red Sparrow is going to be rated R, which is a mistake. Um, I think it is. Is it not? Is it going to be rated R? I I, I I thought it was a hard R. Yeah. Okay. I'll, I'll I'll hold out hope. That's Francis Lawrence. He's a he's a Loyola Marymount guy. Um, Okie doke. So number two on my list, right? A ghost story. Oh, another movie I have not seen, unfortunately. God, I don't even know where to start. I, I feel like we could I could dedicate an entire podcast just to a ghost story. Um, you know, I, another movie that on paper seems like it's going to be a really pretentious slog, um, and just ends up, you know, just like um, Phantom Thread actually ends up being a very, very tight, surprisingly short um, kind of like miraculous, <laughs> profound, um, earth-shaking piece of work. You know, it's it's not quite a horror film. It's not quite a romance. It's not quite a Terrence Malick-inspired um, sort of musing on, uh, you know, time and space and existence necessarily, but it has aspects of all those things. And it also has Casey Affleck walking around with a sheet over his head for 90% of the film. And yet there's still like incredible, like breadth of emotion that comes across, uh, which I think is a testament to the fact that he actually bothered to like show up on set and walk around with a sheet over his head for most of I mean, okay, maybe there were some times where maybe where he had a double or whatever, but I think for the most part it's pretty much him and you can actually tell that there's, you know, a professional at work because you've never seen a ghost emote like this. Um but more than that, it's it's really just this kind of like transcendent experience of time, right? Like the the best thing I can equate it to without giving too much about the film away is that it, it really is like the tree of life meets interstellar, but sort of stripped of all the pretension and the, you know, the interminable length of those two films. Um, and this cat, David Lowry, he's just, he's really, he's fashioned a really fun place for himself in his ability to make films like this or ain't the body saints or, and then also make, you know, Disney's Pete's dragon remake and do it in a really fun way. And that, you know, make a big hit out of that. So and now he's making another he's making another film with uh, a film with Casey Affleck and Robert Redford, uh, which sounds really fun and kind of kind of gangsterish, you know, genre exercise or whatever, which is just going to sort of prove that he's kind of one of the most exciting 30 something American directors working right now. Um, and I just yeah, really just like 
if you haven't seen it, just get a hold of it. Take the time. Turn all the lights off. Turn your phone off. Just like kind of give yourself over to this movie because it really is very singular, a completely singular experience. Like, like I guess Malik is the closest thing I would equate it to, but even that feels like reductive. Like I should give Lowry more credit that he's not ripping off Malik. He really is his own thing and his own guy and his own artist. And um, that is just, it's like nothing else I saw in 2017 really was one of the most moving cinematic experiences I had in 2017. Uh, My apprehension was that it seemed pretentious and people were invoking Malik for this film. Um, I will say I am now that by process of elimination, I know you have not included song to song on this list. (laughs) That makes me very, very happy because I did watch that movie and uh, I was not impressed. (laughs) Yeah. It's, it's, it's near the bottom for sure. Yeah. Um, Number two, is a movie that I believe is number four on your list called Lady Bird. Uh, yeah, this is a movie we've talked about at length also. Um, but this is a movie that is really, really for our generation. Um, so many things rang true for me. Um, just the depiction of, of adolescence and, and going from high school to college uh, was, I thought, really well done and not over-emotional uh, over melodramatic, which these things tend to be. Uh, Circe Ronan uh, is absolutely gangbusters in this movie, as is Laurie Metcalf, as is uh, our guy Timothy Ch- uh, Chalamet. Uh, and I, uh, I mean, just the writing is is so good. It's it's funny and heartbreaking at the same time. Um, yeah, I just I, I I loved it. And you can listen to our our our, our Ladybird podcast if you if you want if you want more content. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean you said it's a movie that's kind of for us and I think that's kind of like the miraculous trick that the movie pulls is that it really makes everybody feel like it's it's about them. You know, regardless of age or whatever, it it really is a movie that it seems to be universally relatable and everybody sees themselves in it. So kudos to Ms. Gerwig for being able to make something so incredibly universal that's not easy at all. All right, Matt, what's your number one? This is not much. This is kind of an anticlimactic <laughs> thing here. Is it the movie you saw eight times this year? Uh, yes, that would be the one. And uh, I won't I won't bore anybody with my gushing about Dunkirk any more uh, unnecessarily. You can go back and listen to our episode. You can you go and read my long-winded uh, blurb about it on my um, on my. To be post. fair, this is the, this is my number four movie, so it's not like I'm a hater or anything. <laughs> Yeah, it's just, I mean, every single time the guy sets out on another one of these, you know, uh, cinematic missions, I I literally go into it with my arms folded. I'm like, okay, Chris, impress me. You know, like I go in very skeptical each time because I've never been, I'm I'm rarely crazy about his his advertising campaigns. I'm rarely crazy about his trailers. Um even the subject, I mean, even like reading about Inception on paper, I remember being very skeptical, like, ah, oh, really, Dreams? Is that is that's the direction we're going this time around? Uh, even The Dark Knight, I was just like, I wasn't crazy about Batman Begins, so I was just like, okay, all right, I guess we're going to do a sequel, and we're going to do The Joker again. I don't know, I, just, I go into his movie so skeptical, and yet he's yet to not completely, you know, blow the doors off the theater every single time, and... This might be the most pure distillation, encapsulation, whatever you want to call it, of what he's capable of. And, um, yeah, I mean, again, you know, saw it in whatever it was, July, and I was just like, I just don't see how any movie can can do what that movie did to me. 
in 2017 and, and no other movie was able to, or really even come close with all due respect to Lady Bird and Ghost Story. Um, it really is just like, this is, this is cinema to me, you know, like when the aliens come down and they ask me to define cinema for them, I might just have to point to something like this, you know, or Inception and be like, I, I, I don't, I can't really put it into words, but I know that's, that's, that's how cinema is supposed to make me feel. And then that's what he does to me pretty much every single time in ways that, uh, that nobody else is really can, you know, on that level. And, and he's, you know, considering we're having all these conversations about the death of the medium or the death of the movie theater, or where is the audience going or whatever. And everybody's switching, you know, all the good stuff is on TV or Netflix. Um, he's the guy who's out there still banging the drum being like, no, 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 there's still things to explore. I still have things I want to say. <laughs> like, and if I can keep doing this on this scale and keep making money, which he does, um, he's just going to keep pushing the proverbial envelope. So I find it really inspiring. <laughs> you know, I, I, I hope that it transcends just being a, you know, quote unquote, Nolan bro. Because uh, I really think, I just think what he does is just, it's so inspirational towards anybody who has a true passion for this particular art form. Yeah. And, you know, one more thing about Dunkirk is, you know, we, we've been inundated over the years with so many World War II films. And to find a new angle and to, and to give us a, a new narrative in a way that we really haven't experienced before um, is, is a feat unto itself. Um, and just the fact that the execution is so uh, incredible um, and it gave us something different was uh, it, the whole movie is just is awe inspiring. And let's give a shout out to Hans Zimmer's score as well. Absolutely. Oh, man. It just gives yeah. me goosebumps just thinking about it. All right. My number one, finishing off the list, a uh, movie called Call Me By Your Name. Oh, sure. Um, this, uh, this movie's affected me more than any movie this year. Um, you know, you mentioned Hangout movies earlier. And this has the sort of, not only is it sort of a, a, a heartbreaking and emotional narrative, it also is, functions as one of those hangout movies. Like, it, it gives you a sense of, of, of time and place um, that is, is transformative. I mean, wanting to be in Italy in the 90s during that time, it just felt, God, I want to I live there. My God, <laughs> this is the lifestyle I'm, I'm dreaming of, and mm-hmm. I, I want to be in that family. Um, Set the, the year you were born, too. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, yeah, not the 90s, sorry. Uh, but uh, this movie had, you know, this is a cliche phrase that we use all the time, but the degree of difficulty um, to make this relationship feasible and believable um, and make you not see it as predatory in any way was uh, just... Uh, Again, an incredible feat. Uh, the acting across the board is uh, just amazing. And my, my favorite scene of the year is is Michael Stuhlbarg's uh, final speech uh, to his son uh, near the end of the film. That uh, if that doesn't rip your heart out, I don't know what will. Um, so I, again, to me, this is a, just sort of a, a perfect movie, and it's something I've I've been thinking about ever since I left the theater. You know, you really kind of you kind of gaslighted me a couple weeks back when we did our Golden Globe podcast. I, you, you really you really downplayed this, basically leading me to believe that um, you weren't a big fan or that it wasn't going to make your list. But I guess you were just sort of like trolling to see where you thought it would end up on mine. And um, uh, having seen it again over the weekend, literally saw it again for my second time three days ago. 
Um, it's it's number ten and a half for sure. Like okay. it was good, definitely good. the closest I came to. I came real close to bumping faces places for this because it's <clears throat> like I said before, along with maybe Get Out and um, and uh, uh, the Florida Project. This is obviously a ubiquitous film this year on top ten lists, and maybe that kind of swayed me to wanting to be a little more esoteric, but. It truly is like a miraculous movie, and it came so close to making it on my list. And yeah, seeing it the second time, I I, I really I, I think honestly, if I'd have seen it the second time before making my because I already made my list by then, it may have snuck in there because the second time around was a was a much more transcendent experience and really like taught me things that I hadn't noticed the first time. Yeah, um, it, it, one one of my favorite things about the movie is you know some people will go away and go oh that was a that was sad that was a sad ending and you know talking to people about it like i i firmly believe that it's it's not a sad ending you know not every relationship is meant to last forever and it's it's it was educational and and worthwhile for everyone involved um and so you know there can be sadness but ultimately it's 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 not a bad thing right um and i i I don't know. I like I, I that really stuck with me. Is not the sort of path that most movies uh, within this sort of genre will ever dare to take, right? Um, and I, th- I think that is a credit to to all the actors involved. And this is this is an actor's movie, and everyone is is so fucking good. I mean, Chalamet is a star in the making, already yep. a star. Uh, Army Hammer, uh, God, I hope he he keeps getting challenging work, and. Uh, this has been the year of the Stuhlbarg, Matt. <laughs> yeah. God, he's he's in everything. I, I didn't even realize. I finally saw the post the other day, and uh, I didn't realize he was in that, too. Holy yeah. shit. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, when we, we expanded this thing to 10 nominations, we, we certainly opened it up to the, the possibility of this happening more and more. I mean, remember, remember back when um, John C. Riley was in three out of the five? He was in Chicago, Gangs of New York, and The Hours in the same year. I was like, whoa, the same actors in three of the five nominees. And this year you got, you know, Caleb Landry Jones is probably going to end up in at least two, if not three. Michael Stuhlbarg is in three. Timothy Chalamet is going to be in at least two. You're going to see Lucas Hedges is going to be in at least two. Um, So we're going to see that more and more. But yes, I completely agree. Stuhlbarg, um, he's a big, big deal. He actually did the, uh, he was one of the keynote speakers at my uh, graduation from UCLA over the summer. So uh, I'm a big Stuhlbarg fan. And uh, yeah, of the three films he appears in, this is obviously the one. This is obviously the performance. He's got he's got the scene, the kind of scene that every actor just, I'm sure, salivates over when they see it on the page, right? And he makes an incredible meal out of it. Um, and yeah, it just sort of like comes to the thesis statement that I, you know, it's a little more sophisticated than better to have loved and lost than never to have loved at all, right? It's more like, uh, you know, if you shut yourself off from the potential for pain, You'll never get to experience pleasure or whatever, right? So, uh, yeah, this movie's saying a lot of really profound things. I think the thing that sort of, like, kept me at arm's length the first time I saw it was that it's a, it's a little more, it's much more kind of, like, casual, and it, it meanders a little more than Guadagnino's previous film, uh, A Bigger Splash, which was on my top ten list last year, which is a very, like, in-your-face, heavily stylized movie. Whereas this is very much just, like, kind of, like, lazy, laid-back. I mean, it really mirrors the... The environment right yeah and i think so, that's on purpose for sure absolutely the second time through i was like oh this is all very intentional 
But I think I was so like prepared for a Guad- you know, Guadagnino's next movie is the Suspiria remake, which I'm sure is going to be bonkers, <laughs> you know, right? And yes. I, that's kind of, I, I sort of had him pigeonholed a little bit. So when this was so kind of like uh, subdued, I think it was harder for me to access the first time around. But the second time I kind of, I, I keyed into the vibe a little bit better. And uh, yeah, I think it's a really miraculous movie. And um, yeah, can't wait to see it again. So good choice. Cool. Honorable mentions. Honorable mentions. Oh yeah, I got a, I got a few of those. Uh, Get Out is at the top of that list. Um, yeah, Coco. Uh, I really like the Disaster Artist. <laughs> I'll say that again. Mm-hmm. Um, it. I saw It again, and fuck if I don't love that movie. Holy sure. shit! That's a god. Um, a movie that went by the wayside for for a number of reasons, um, including legal action. Uh, Colossal. Oh yeah. I really love that movie near the top of my list. Uh, I, Tanya, uh, John Wick, Little Hours. Uh, I think that's 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 about it. I, I you know I finally saw the post and it's very late era Spiel, Spielbergian. So that's all I'll say about that. <laughs> um, yeah, fair enough. I, the post would be on my honorable mentions for sure, as would uh, the aforementioned Wind River. Um, I'm surprised three billboards didn't make it into your top ten. I know you were a pretty big fan. Um, yeah, it looks like that's. 15th on my list, so okay. I should mention that. Yeah. Um, a movie I have my issues with, but certainly have a lot of respect for. I'd put that in my honorable mentions. Uh, Ingrid Goes West, which was a movie that I that probably would come in at 12 or 13. A uh, friend of the podcast, Matt Spicer, uh, who's nominated for some Independent Spirit Awards, his directorial debut, which is just a weird, twisted, funny, just a fantastic movie. Check it out if you haven't seen it. Uh, Hostels, uh, Get Out, of course. Uh, Big Sick, uh, All These Sleepless Nights, the uh, Austrian film. Uh, Very strange, (laughs) sort of like weird, drugged up um, party movie. Uh, But I liked it a lot. And then, yeah, Call Me By Your Name is definitely, I'd say, you know, 10 and a half on my list, let's say. Oh, one more I forgot uh, that I really, really enjoyed, uh, Lost City of Z. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, really like that movie. Um, All right, shall we do our predictions, Matt? Yeah, let's get into it. Let's, let's, Let's put some things on the record. All right, how much are we wagering now? Is 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 fifty two? Is that is that is that seem extreme? Should I be more responsible uh, than that? Forty? Let's let, let's do forty. Let's do forty because I'm I'm taking some shots here, um, but I feel good about it. And and our rule here for best picture is uh, we're going to name exactly how many we think are getting nominated, but in a confidence order. So if I if my ninth uh, gets nominated, but only seven films actually get nominated and it's one of them that doesn't count in our, in our system. Does that make sense? That does make sense. Yes. All right. Sounds good. Um, I guess I'll start from the top of my list. Um, these first four are basically tied for confidence level. Uh, call me by your name, lady bird, shape of water and three billboards. Um, then I have the post get out. I Tanya and phantom thread. I'm sticking with eight. You're sticking with eight. Okay. I'm going to do, <laughs> did you just drop the mic, <laughs> drop <Yeah>. the pen? <laughs> um, yeah, I'm going to go with eight as well, but I'm going to flop Phantom Thread for the Florida Project. So I'm going to do three billboards, Get Out, The Shape of Water. The, the, this, by the way, this is in the order of um, strength that I think these have going in. Uh, three billboards, Get Out, actually flip-flop those. Three billboards, Shape of Water, Get Out, Ladybird, The Post, Dunkirk, Call Me By Your Name, and The Florida Project. So that's oh, eight. Oh, sh- 
I forgot. Sorry, I forgot Dunkirk. I'm going nine. My going, my, my apologies. You're yeah, going nine. Right. Okay, so I'm going eight. You're going nine, and then of course you know I Tanya Phantom Thread and the Big Sick would be you know nine, ten, and eleven. But uh, but I'm not going on the record. I'm I'm going with eight. Okay, cool. God, how did I miss Dunkirk here? I gotta, We've done that before. We we did that. We did that earlier in the season too. Where it's just it's so obvious. It's so right there in your face that when we were shortlisting, we forgot to even mention it. So <sighs> okay, good. I feel good now. All right, you want you want to go director? <laughs> yeah. Okay. This is an order of uh, strength. I feel at this point. Uh, Guillermo del Toro, Christopher Nolan, Greta Gerwig, Jordan Peele. The five slot is a tough one. It comes down to three men, and I guess under protest, I'm going to have to go with Martin McDonough. Luca Guadagnino and Steven Spielberg would, of course, be six and seven, but uh, I just think three billboards is just too hot. So, yeah, Del Toro, Nolan, Peel, Gerwig, McDonough. All right, Matt. I have two that you do not have here, Okay, which is exciting. Um, I have... Uh, Nolan, Gerwig, Del Toro, of course. I'm going to get rid of Jordan Peele and Mark McDonough and add Steven Spielberg and Luca Guadagnino. Okay. Um, my thought with Mark McDonough, I mean, we have this history. We, we saw it most recently, I guess, with, with Argo, right? Uh, Best Picture frontrunner, director doesn't even get nominated. So it, it's not like that hasn't happened before. And uh, Mark McDonough, obviously known as a playwright, this is a, this is a writerly film. Um, I, I wouldn't be surprised to see him miss out. And I'm also predicting a little fanning of the of the flames for, for three billboards as we get into these nominations tomorrow. Fair enough. You just have to consider the fact that uh, the ballots were were turned in what two weeks ago? So we're not we're we're basically we're not talking about the the, the timbre today. We're talking about the timbre, you know, potentially as as much as a month ago, right? <laughs> I like your list better personally. Like if you know, if it just came down to personal preference, I'd love to see Guadagnino and Spielberg make it in there. But I think, unfortunately, McDonough makes it in. Uh, okay, cool, good. We got a little. I'm glad there's a little um, deviation here. Uh, okay, go with your actresses, please. Actresses. All right. Um, Francis McDormand, Sally Hawkins, Saoirse Ronan, Margot Robbie, and Meryl Streep. Yeah, those are exactly the same as mine. All right. Jessica I think, Chastain I mean, would be the uh, she'd be the six hole, but I don't think she's got a chance. I think this is way too uh, this is too strong of a field. Seems pretty strong. I, I've also seen a couple uh, Judy Denches, right? Yeah, not gonna happen. Not gonna happen. All right, actor. This is a uh, this is an interesting one. You want to go ahead? Yeah, here we go. All right, this is in in order of strength. Oldman, Chalamet, Daniel Day Lewis, James Franco. And in the five hole, I'm going to flip-flop a little bit from what I said a couple weeks back. I'm going to go with Daniel Kaluuya. And that would bump Tom Hanks to number six. I just feel that the post is such... A, it's the Merrill show, and B, I feel that the the momentum is waning. Like like you said, you saw it last week, and you just it's just not quite what we thought it was going to be a month ago, right? It's yeah, just not I, quite that movie that we kind of hoped it would be. I'm I'm banking on just the sort of aftermath of the James Franco allegation stuff and the fact that everyone loves Tom Hanks. Again, so though, I'm, dude, the 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 nomination. I mean, I don't want to sway you because you know there's money on the table, but the nom the the ballots were 
submitted before the Franco news came. I mean, I know we've we've always kind of known that he's a little bit. Has been around, yes, <laughs> okay, I understand. Sorry. But the, the voting itself, I'm just saying. Here are my here are my nominations. All right, Daniel Day Lewis, Gary Oldman, Chalamet, Tom Hanks, and Daniel Kaluuya. So I'm just bumping Franco, adding Hanks. Yeah, this is exciting. That's um, good stuff. All right, so what do we have to supporting actress? All right, so this is fairly straightforward, I think. Um, I got Allison Janney, Laurie Metcalf, Holly Hunter, Mary J. Blige, and Octavia Spencer. Yep, that's what I have too. Uh, Tiffany Haddish, Hung Chow, and Leslie Manville would be, our, I think, our creepin'. And if any of them were to bump Mary J. Blige, I wouldn't be surprised. But yes, my five are exactly the same as yours. Uh, sporting actor in order of strength at this point. Uh, Rockwell, Defoe, Army Hammer, Richard Jenkins, and that five spot I'm going to give to Stuhlbarg, but I think Woody is creeping. And if if Woody were to bump Stuhlbarg, I wouldn't wouldn't be surprised, unfortunately. But again, right. where the fuck is Ray Romano in this conversation? Well, Matt, I love Richard Jenkins, but come on, Ray Romano needs that. He deserves that fifth spot. Matt, there's always a surprise acting nomination somewhere here, right? Every year there is. We agree. Okay. And and there's no better person to be that surprise <laughs> than Ray Romano. That's why I have Sam Rockwell, Willem Dafoe, Richard Jenkins. I'm going with Stuhlbarg over Hammer. And then I'm adding Ray Romano to the list here. Okay, so wait a second. So you got your your bumping Army and your bumping uh, Richard Jenkins, and you're substituting Woody Harrelson and Ray Romano. No, 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 no. Oh, Woody's sorry. not on my list. Oh, I just, sorry. I have I have four of your five. I'm just bumping Army for Ray Romano. Got it. But you still think Stuhlbar banks it in? Okay. All right. That's exciting. Um. I guess let's do original screenplay first. God, is this a fucking stacked? I mean, is this a competitive category or what? Like, I had a hard time boiling this down to like 10 movies that I think are contenders for this. Yeah, this is really hard. So this is what I'm going with. Um, I am going with Lady Bird, Get Out, The Post, Shape of Water, and Big Sick. Not three billboards. Uh, No. Oh, shit. Fuck. <laughs> I didn't put that in there. No. Yeah, I'm I, I you, have this to, is a rough I, one. No, no, I have to bump one. Okay. Yeah. Uh, you, you, go, go with yours, then, I, then I'll put it in. Because Three Billboards is obviously going to be in there. Yeah. I'm going to get out Lady Bird, Three Billboards, Shape of Water, and The Big Sick. Yeah, I'm going to... Fuck. I'm going to do the same thing. I feel like a turd, but I'm going to... I'm, I'm, I'm go, This is some game theory here. I have to equal <laughs> you here. I mean, uh, of, all the, the, of all the things post deserve, the post deserves besides Meryl, it's probably this... But god damn, dude! Like, look at look at the best picture race this year. It's all original. It's all original screenplays. It's crazy. I mean, I, could you see a scenario where Shape of Water gets bumped here? I guess I guess the number one contender to get bumped would be Big Sick, just because of lack of lack of buzz. But I feel like they have to give give it a nod here. We'll see. And, and then it comes down to the post and Phantom Thread, and I just I just don't think either have the juice. I definitely don't think Phantom Thread has the juice, unfortunately, even though it deserves to be there. And I just think the post at this point is vulnerable. Um, I even have the Florida project as like an outside, you know, potential kind of, I don't know. I, I, it's just, it's a rough, it's a rough category. That one's going to be real close. I mean, I don't think the shape of water honestly deserves to be there of all the things that movie does really well. It's screenplay is not high on that list for me, but I just think it's just way too ubiquitous of a, 
I mean, if, if the shape of water doesn't win, doesn't get nominated for original screenplay tomorrow morning, then I'd say, let's just give three billboards the best picture award now. Because... Oh, I don't want to, I don't want to live in that world. Man. God damn it. <laughs> All right, here we go. Adapted. This is going to be fun because there's going to be, there's going to be something wacky going on here. This, the five hole is going to be crazy. Um, and here's here's where I'm ranking in terms of I mean basically they can just go ahead and give James Ivory the statue now, um, because uh, the rest of these are are all I think kind of interchangeable. So call me by your name, disaster artist, Molly's game, and then I'm gonna put Logan in there. I think this is Logan's chance to shine. Um, it's it's been doing pretty well recently. Uh, got itself a little WGA love. Got itself a US, USC scripter uh, nomination. And then in the fifth hole, which some people are saying might go to something like Wonder, which sounds crazy to me. Some people are saying Wonder Woman, which sounds crazy to me. I'm putting Mudbound in there. That's a movie that I'm not crazy about, but I do think it's a pretty impressive uh, adaptation of what I presume is a very you know <sighs> dense and complicated man. novel. Is that you what you have? I have the exact same five. Yeah, yeah that's yeah, boring. Yeah, <laughs> it I mean, is, but I just I just can't see Wonder. Uh, but then again, I'll eat, maybe I'll eat my words in six hours. We'll see. Yeah, I could see. I mean, I guess, I guess Wonder Woman. But dude, what if Wonder Woman and Logan make it in there? How crazy that's that what I was, I, see I was thinking about that. I was like, I can't, I can't, I can't do that. It doesn't feel right. So. <laughs> it's just too much to ask for. Yeah. <clears throat> All right. Well, this will be interesting tomorrow morning. We don't have a ton of difference. It might come down to that directing category and uh, Hanks over Franco. Yeah, and you might, you may uh, rue the day that you uh, sort of let your emotions. Uh, allow you to put Ray Romano in that spot, but I will, you you're on what? the record now. <laughs> I will go down with the SS Romano. If, if <laughs> it's fine. It's fine. If he costs me forty dollars, he he deserves he deserves $40 that for that performance. Yeah, yeah. Um, all right, Matt. This has been a wonderful podcast. Great way to start off 2018. Like we said, the Golden Globes one doesn't count as a quickie. Um, yeah, let's have a great year, huh? Looking forward to it, pal. Thank you so much. Alright, until next time, this has been We Like Movies. See ya! Oh, to see without my eyes The first time that you kissed me Boundless by the time I cried I built your walls around me White noise, what an awful sound